available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Oh, hello and welcome from me, Nigel Hewen. And this edition of Outlook is being recorded on Wednesday, the 7th of December. Uh, now, before we go into the usual rundown of the programme, I've got a little announcement to make to you. Firstly, uh, before we do that, community broadcasting, CBS as you know it, is changing. Uh, as I'm sure everyone knows, CBS, which incidentally started 46 years ago in 1976, has always been an independent registered charity and has had its recording studios here within the resource centre for many of those years, of course. Since uh, Rosie and Trisha dedicated themselves to breathing new life into the resource centre some years ago, making it the sort of very vibrant and hugely successful centre it is today, CBS has been working ever, close, ever more closely with that centre here. And to this end, on the 1st of December last week, CBS deregistered as an independent charity and amalgamated with Coventry Resource Centre for the Blind, donating all our equipment, assets and monies to CRCB. This, we all felt, was a very logical coming together of two charities, providing services to the same visually impaired people. And it also, of course, ensures the continuity and development of the talking newspaper as a unit within CRCB. But for you, as a listener, there will be no change whatsoever, except at the same time as amalgamating with CRCB, we have changed our name from Community Broadcasting Services, CBS, to Coventry Talking Newspaper, CTN, which more accurately reflects what we do. So it will be the same group of people producing the same programme each week in the same location, which we will continue making available through all the same channels as before, memory sticks with a post on our website and through the same social media. We will still have our own website, talkingnewspaper.org.uk, where the current and back editions of Outlook programmes are available. We retain our same email address, which is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk, and our same telephone number contact uh, to leave messages for the answer machine via the CRCB telephone, which is 02476 717522, then option 5 for the Talking Newspaper. So, really, it is all change, but no change at all. So, happy listening. Now, what's in this week's listening programme? Well, we've, uh, we're, as always, going to visit one of the architectural treasures of Coventry this, this week, the Belgrade Theatre. And you'll remember that uh, uh, last week Bill started talking about telegrams. Well, he's going to continue that story and finish it this week. I guess most of you can remember the name Mark Woods, and certainly those who go to the Monday Club will, because he visited recently. But uh, Dave had an interview with him when he was at the Monday Club recently, talking about his most recent exploits. Now, uh, with Christmas coming, uh, we wanted to know a little bit, or Sheila wanted to know a little bit about the giving of presents, uh, giving of gifts at Christmas. What's the origins of that? She's going to tell us in in the programme. Uh, and then, of course, there's one other thing, Advent calendars. Uh, so, have you got an Advent calendar? Uh, if so, let us know, because we're going to tell you all about it and where they came from. And finally, there's a little bit of poetry from Margaret called Make It Snow, uh, uh, which is written by William Wordsworth. Now, next week's outlook uh, will be the last for this year. 
as we will be taking a two-week break for Christmas uh, with the current irregular postal strikes. Uh, we are sometimes not getting wallets back as quickly as we used to for reuse, so some of you may well, possibly will, unfortunately, have problems receiving the memory sticks re- regularly. Uh, that is coming in as a reminder at the end of the programme as well, uh, so just to, to remind you for next week. Now, what do we do now? Well, we start doing the, the programme, what's going on in the main things, but for, for all that we've got sport, we've, we've got your post bag, we've got news from the Resource Centre, but of course we've also got the local news with Elaine and myself. Outlook News. Mike Ashley's response to events surrounding the CBS Arena and Coventry City Football Club appear to have quashed any suggestion of a retail master plan in Coventry. Just days after buying the stadium for £17 million in the fallout from the previous owner's collapse into administration, Fraser's group gave Coventry City Football Club, the venue's most high-profile tenant, what could be perceived as an ultimatum. Fraser's group played down talk of an eviction in an official statement released on Monday. On the contrary, the communication appeared to extend something of an olive branch. It said, Fraser's has, throughout all its involvement with the stadium, been supportive of securing the long-term future of the football club in playing its games at the stadium. This position remains unchanged. Prior to acquiring the stadium, Fraser's issued a new licence, mirroring the terms the club had agreed with the previous owners. However, the club chose not to sign it at that time. A revised proposal, together with a new licence, has been issued to the club and will secure their immediate future at the stadium. Signing the licence would allow for more detailed discussions to take place about the club's long-term arrangements at the stadium, including to accommodate a number of requests which were made by the football club. Speculation abounds as to what this twist in the most convoluted of tales means for the Sky Blues, its future at the CBS Arena and indeed Fraser's Group. The rumour mill has gone into overdrive, with some speculating about an intention from Mr Ashley to oust Doug King as the club's new majority shareholder, should his takeover receive full approval from the relative authorities. Others have contemplated the possibility of arena redevelopment, with retail at the heart of the project. What we definitely do know is that this dramatic episode comes just a few weeks after Fraser's group unveiled ambitious plans for huge global headquarters on the edge of Coventry. The company wants to create a giant campus at Junction 2 of the M6 in Anstey. Fraser's group has a big portfolio of well-known brands, including Sports Direct, Flannels, House of Fraser, Game, Jack Wills, Sofa.com, Evans Cyples, Fraser's and Everlast. The proposed campus would be designed by acclaimed architect Grimshaw, the firm behind the Eden Project and London's Elizabeth Line. The campus plan is at an early stage and a planning application has not yet been submitted to Rugby Borough Council. 
Almost 900 people have signed a petition against plans to remove much-loved farmland in Coventry to make way for a housing development. Residents are urging the council to save a green spot in Browns Lane in Camden Wedge. The council-owned patch of land could be cleared to build 350 new homes. Residents are concerned over the impact the development could have on the area and the loss of the green space. They are also worried that the project would pave the way for new developments across Camden Wedge. The Brownside site was declassified as Greenbelt land in the 1970s to support the expansion of the Jaguar factory. The plant later closed, of course, in 2009. Local resident Brenda Williams, who is backing the petition, said this proposal will result in the loss of a precious local beauty spot and increased traffic. This may be council-owned land, but they only hold on to it on behalf of the people. I would urge them to listen to the people who are demanding they stop the sale and save Camden Wedge. Comment, commenting on the application, Tory councillor Tolokan Singh Jandu, who collected signatures for the petition, said, This development would have devastating consequences for the area's residents. They want to bulldoze our greenbelt, which will intensify pollution and exacerbate poor air quality. It would increase traffic in an area that's already struggling and increase the potential for flooding. I call on the council to put people before profit and withdraw this dreadful plan. Please work with residents to develop a local plan for local people, not this developer's charter. The residents have also the backing of the leader of the Conservatives at the council. Commenting on the, on the petition, opposition leader councillor Gary Ridley said, I'm not surprised so many people have signed this petition. Everyone I've spoken to is outraged. A spokesman for the Labour-run Coventry City Council has previously said that if the scheme is approved, they would stand by their 30-year pledge not to build on Camden Wedge, which remains in effect. Rounds Lane is an allocated housing site in the Coventry local plan, he said. There has always been a plan for new homes here. In the local plan, the site was identified for 475 new homes, but now we are proposing 350 new homes. We are not building on any land that has not been identified for development since 1991 and are fulfilling our 30-year pledge not to build on Cowden Wedge. People in the West Midlands who are eligible for the free flu vaccine are being urged to take up the offer. After latest data shows many people in the most vulnerable groups remain unprotected. This comes as 9% of patients in hospital with flu in the region have needed to be moved to intensive care units or high dependency units over the last week. Dr James Chiwetti, Health Protection Consultant and Flu Lead in the West Midlands, said, As cases of flu are increasing, we're urging parents to get their children protected, as nationally rates of flu are highest in the 5 to 14 year olds, while the greatest number of hospitalisations for flu are currently in under 5s. We are extremely fortunate to have vaccines which remain our best protection against severe disease and hospitalisation. Parents of two to three year olds are being reminded to protect their youngsters from flu as latest figures show that children under five make up the highest rate in the country. 
Dr. Chiwesi added, This year, with everyone mixing as we did before the pandemic and reduced immunity after not mixing as much for the last few years, we are preparing for a challenging winter. Currently, COVID-19 levels are low, but cases are likely to rise steeply, and this, along with circulation of flu, could make for one of the most challenging winter seasons we have seen. That's why it is so important to get people vaccinated as soon as possible and to make sure their children are protected. Coventry will host the 2023 British Transplant Games with athletes from our city hoping to do their hometown proud. The official launch event was held this week ahead of Coventry hosting the Games at a number of venues from the 27th of July to the 30th of July next year. The launch saw game sponsors, stakeholders, transplant recipients and donor families gather to begin the countdown to the 45th annual Games. Athletes will range from the ages of 3 to 80, with more than 50, 50 hospital teams representing their transplant unit with the support of friends, family and volunteers. Among them will be Vince Main, who discovered he had polycystic disease in 2002 as his kidney function was beginning to drop. He started dialysis in February 2013 and in August that year had his kidney removed in Coventry. Vince's brother was his donor and since the transplant, Vince has had many achievements including competing at his first British Transplant Games and then his first World Games in Argentina in 2015. He says his experience have taught him to be kind to himself when he needs to and to never take things for granted. Also looking to compete next summer is former media production student at Coventry University, Luke Alexander, who was diagnosed with the biliary atresia at three weeks old, a condition which traps bile inside the liver. However, at 11, his liver was starting to fail, but thanks to Luke's donor, a 13-year-old boy, he was able to get a complex transplant which transformed his life from being a socially isolated boy to an athlete competing in the Games. Speaking to the BBC, he said he's been able to meet and make friends that have had transplants and similar experiences, which has helped him appreciate the power of the gift of life. Guns and nearly a million pounds in cash and drugs have been seized in Coventry as part of police crackdown on serious organised crime. West Midlands police officers raided an industrial unit in Coventry and found a scorpion machine gun and two shotguns stuffed in bags that were hidden in walls. On the same day, in an unrelated series of raids across Coventry and Warwickshire, police also recovered 11.5 kilograms of cocaine, amphetamines and cannabis, as well as a drugs press and mixing agents, and a blank firing gun converted into a live firearm. They also seized around £420,000 in cash, the drugs have an estimated street value of £500,000, making it one of West Midland Police's biggest seizures in recent times. Five people were arrested in last Friday's raid. Three people were arrested and charged, and two more were arrested and then released pending investigation. The investigation into the guns found in the wall continues. 
Chief Inspector Dave Amos of West Midlands Police said, These are some fantastic recoveries of drugs and weapons that would undoubtedly have been used to spread fear, misery and violence on the streets of the West Midlands. We won't stop in our pursuit of those who deal drugs and trade in firearms. They represent a serious threat and we will be relentless in our efforts to take them off the streets. It's only thanks to information we gather from the community that we are able to tackle this threat. Coventry City Council's chief executive will leave his £196,000 a year job after 14 years in the role. Martin Reeves will take up the job of chief executive at Oxfordshire County Council. A leaving date will be set after it is formally approved by Oxford councillors later this month. Mr Reeves was paid up to £196,289 per year in the years 2020 and 2021, according to a council report on senior salaries. He said he was sad to go and claimed he would be leaving Coventry Council in a much stronger place. Mr Reeves said, although I am very sad to be leaving Coventry, the time is right for a new challenge, and I am proud to be remaining in local government, which is an area which makes such a positive difference to so many lives. I have had the pleasure of working with so many great people here in Coventry, and I have been given the opportunity to deliver major change as well as innovative programmes that have changed the way we deliver services to our residents. But I'm excited by the new challenge, and I know I am leaving Coventry City Council in a much stronger place. I wish my colleagues, the Council and its partners every success for the future. Councillor George Duggins, leader of Coventry City Council, said, Martin has been a fantastic leader for our employees, but I understand and respect his decision to seek a new challenge. Many people across the council and the city will be sad to see Martin go, and I know that this is a challenge that he will relish and be extremely successful in. CCTV footage shows flytippers allegedly dumping medical waste outside a resident's property in Coventry. The video, captured on ring doorbell footage, shows a white van travelling towards Lansdowne Street on Friday, November the 25th at around 11.30am. The van then parks up on the residential street and a man steps out of the vehicle. The footage appears to show him removing items from the van and placing them on the road. The resident of the property, who are asked to remain anonymous, was horrified to find large mounts of rubbish in front of her home after returning from work. Photos show cardboard boxes, plastic bags and old packaging dumped along Lansdowne Street. Upon closer inspection, the resident said she discovered swathes of medical waste, including prescription medication and old bedding. The resident said she was upset to see the discarded waste near her doorstep. She told Coventry Live, My dad got home just after midday from work and saw the trash dumped there. It appears as if the fly tippers have emptied a property, either a patient that's moved out of a home or a patient that's deceased. Passers-by were rummaging through that rubbish and prescription medicine was found. We saw people had to walk across the road to get past rubbish on the pavement, which is dangerous. The rubbish has since been cleared from the street, the resident said. 
Coventry City Council said we encourage any residents who witness fly tipping, especially when it includes evidence such as personal details, to report it with photos to Coventry City Council via the online portal. If this process is followed, it will be investigated by the street enforcement team and the fly-tipped waste will be cleaned up. Six men convicted of possessing offensive weapons and violent disorder, which broke out in Coventry City Centre in September 2018, leading to the death of Fidel Glasgow, have been sentenced to over a collective 17 years in jail. Fidel, who was 21 at the time, was fatally stabbed near the Club M on Cross Road in the early hours of September 1st, 2018. He died in hospital a few hours later, although no one has yet been charged with his murder. Last year, several men were charged with wounding with intent to cause grievous bodily harm against a 23-year-old man who was taken to hospital with serious injuries from which he has since recovered. The man has since left the country and cannot be traced, and therefore charges relating to him have been withdrawn. Today there are six men, six men, there are six men jailed. Among them was 24-year-old Pa Gay of Harnells Lane East, Stoke, also known as Pa Salyu, who, prior to being arrested, was an acclaimed rapper who won last year's prestigious BBC Sounds Of Award. He was also nominated in the Rising Star section of the Brit Awards and seemed to have a bright future ahead of him in the music industry. He was jailed for two years and nine months for violent disorder and possession of a offensive weapon. The other five were given jail sentences ranging from a year and four months to four years. Detective Inspector Michelle Allen said this was extreme violence which involved the use of knives and other weapons. This violent disorder led to the tragic death of a young man. We are still actively investigating Fidel's murder and we remain in contact with his family to keep them fully updated with developments. A worker sitting in a chair has been employed to enforce a road closure in Coventry. The road, located next to Coventry City Council House, has been partially shut for two years to enforce one-way traffic rules for vehicles. The council hired a worker sitting in a chair to guide traffic across the 100-metre stretch of road. Nearly £200,000 has been spent to change the road's layout and enforce the new rules, which were initially brought by the pandemic to help with social distancing. However, Coventry City Council's Highways Director, Colin Knight, has agreed to a more permanent solution for the new, to the new road. It comes as shock was expressed at the news, which emerged after a BBC Freedom of Information request. Mr Knight said, The majority of the funding, more than 109,000 of it, has been provided by the government through European Regional Development Funding. That money is for specific purposes. We did not have a choice on what we spent it on. It had to be measured directly relating to social distancing. This is about the ongoing regeneration of our city. We want to create a city for people. Mr Knight said the council was considering more permanent solutions such as ANPR, cameras, 
and operated bollards, but said this was a big investment. The new changes are expected to be in place by the end of the winter season. Conservative Councillor Matty Heaven, Coventry City Council's Shadow Cabinet Member for Transport, told the BBC she was surprised and shocked by the management of the partial road closure. Coventry's Fargo Village is set to be a hub of festive activities this Christmas with lots to do for all the family. It's already kicked off from food traders to visits from Santa and his elves. There will be lots of to get visitors in the festive spirit. And there will be live music with everything from jazz to a Bavarian umpire band. Fargo Village is Coventry's creative quarter and it's gone from strength to strength since opening in 2014. The team behind Coventry's Dining Club and Digbeth Dining Club will head to the factory for four weeks up to Christmas, bringing along their famous food traders and music. But there's a lot more going on as well. Fargo Village will host to its biggest uh, ever Christmas makers markets on the weekends of December the 17th and 18th, with more than 70 artisan makers making in two indoor spaces. There's also live entertainment and independent food and drink vendors. Digbeth Dining Club is showcasing the best in street food traders every week from Friday to Sunday, with the World Cup being shown on the big screen. Fargo's Christmas Beer Keller will be serving German Christmas vibes this Friday for a night of fun with a Bavarian umpire band. Organisers insist that while Lederhausen are optional, they are strongly recommended for maximum enjoyment. On Saturday, the Saturday, December the 10th and 17th, and returning on December 22nd and 23rd, Santa will visit the village and meet and greet families in their own Fargo Grotto. An elf trail is also set to take over the village. Slots to meet Santa and receive a small gift are available to book online. Holly, Fargo Village's general manager, said, We are really thrilled to be bringing new elements to our Christmas experience at Fargo this year. There's something for all ages, and as always, we are championing the chance to shop and use the services of talented, independent, creative makers and businesses. This week sees the return of a Coventry Christmas tradition, Santa's vintage sleigh ride at the Transport Museum. For almost 70 years, Santa's sleigh ride in the city centre has been one of Coventry's best-loved institutions. Generation after generation have been enchanted by the attraction, with thousands of kids making the trip to Lapland on the mechanical sleigh and sitting alongside Santa in magical surroundings every year. But what are the origins of the vintage sleigh ride? Santa's sleigh ride was a nationwide initiative by the Co-op to bring Lapland to children in cities and towns around the UK. The flagship Co-op in Corporation Street became home to one of those rides all the way back in 1956, staying in the exact same location for just under 60 years. Every year the co-op will be transformed into a magical Christmas wonderland with fake snow twinkling lights and such was its popularity, queues snaking around the store. You'd finally get on the sleigh ride, 
sit on one of the wooden benches and the mechanics and moving curtains would give the impression you were flying to Lapland. With the ride over, you'd be ushered by an elf to meet Father Christmas in his grotto. Then you'd make your way out of Lapland, full of the joy of Christmas and clutching a gift. But with the ever-changing way in which people shopped, the Corporation Street store was determined no longer financially viable, closing its doors in October 2015. While shoppers in the city were sad to lose such a huge high street name, it was the loss of the sleigh ride that really upset the people of Coventry. Feelings were so strong about the loss of the sleigh ride, a petition to save it attracted thousands of signatures. Luckily, Culture Coventry was keeping a close eye on the situation and an agreement was reached with the co-op which would bring the attraction to Coventry Transport Museum. It's been there ever since, selling out each year and bringing the magical festive spirit to all ages. Because there were rides dotted at co-ops all over the country, the vintage sleigh ride has become a nationwide nostalgia trip. However, where once there were dozens of sleigh rides, it is believed as few as three remain, with only one being fully functional, and that's right here in Coventry at the Transport Museum. The ride is maintained by workshop staff at the museum, including Rob Hubbard, who in recent years has overseen the efforts to keep the much-loved sleigh in top condition. Rob's work on the sleigh is made more interesting by the fact he rode it himself as a child. Rob said, I'm 62 now, and I remember riding the sleigh myself as a kid. It was something to look forward to at the co-op every year. Because of the movements of the horses, the curtains and the sleigh itself, it genuinely gives the illusion it is moving. Outlook News So now we move on to what's happening here at the Resource Centre and we have a different voice to speak. Hugh is not around. Hugh is indisposed, I gather. He is. It's Joe speaking this week instead. Thank you, Nigel. To to Joe. Thank (laughs) you. Uh, Yes, sorry to say, some of you are aware that uh, Hugh has not been feeling well for the last couple of days, so he is not in at the moment. We're pretty sure it's only a, a minor winter bug, but it's laid him low, so he's staying at home. And... We would hope he'd be in by the end of the week. But meanwhile, we're holding the fort. And of course, we all send our best wishes to Hugh for his feeling better. And just to say, he has tested copiously for COVID, <laughs> right. as we will, as we all do. There's so more flu than COVID around now, in any case, I think, doesn't there? I if, think if so. It is flu, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think it's just ordinary flus yes. and other bugs, yeah. aren't there, that they say are yep. laying us low. We're not immune because we haven't had them for so many years now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, we haven't been exposed to each other's quite. bugs quite so much. <laughs> um, so, let me run through a few news items for you from the Resource Centre. So... You will have been hearing every week, I'm sure, about Christmas cards. <laughs> yes. So I'll mention those again. <laughs> Packs of eight, lovely cartoon, four different designs, and they are in reception. You're welcome to buy them at reception anytime you're in the centre. Um, got quite a few packs left, but there's, they're selling well. Um, the theatre trip, I think, is now full. The theatre trip to see Alice at the Criterion, which was booked for next Tuesday the 13th. I think we've got a full minibus load now, so 
Um, if you want to be on the reserve list, then by all means give us a call, but I don't think we can promise any extra seats now. Um, somebody very kindly, I think her name is Jan Pather. I think I might have that right, but it's just from an email address. But Jan very kindly emailed us to say, have we heard of something uh, called goodfoodtalks.com? For those people that are using smart technology, smartphones or um, what do you call them, tablets, iPads, yep. computers, mm. for those of you that are able to do that, or perhaps for your family members, it might be worth knowing there is an app called goodfoodtalks.com. Sounds jolly clever to me. Uh, it allows you to go in and check the restaurant menu of your local restaurants That's and clever. it will read the menu to you. So that's, that's clever, isn't very it? clever, isn't yes. it? And yes. could be very useful. Mm. I think it might be a relatively new app because it looks to me like a lot of restaurants haven't yet joined up. Right. I've, I've had a look at it. I've had a look at it, mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't difficult to look at. I know that Weatherspoon's chain has signed up, and that's quite useful yes. here, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and you can actually ask your favourite restaurants, remind, tell them about it, mm-hmm. give them the address, and they can go in and register. Yep. I believe that's free. Even better. So yep. if you've got a particular favourite in Coventry or anywhere nearby, right. yep. um, maybe um, have a look at it, get a family member to look at it for you or whatever, take it in the restaurant with you. Your get family them. member can yeah. have it on their phone if you don't and use encourage one. restaurants to join up. Yep. Exactly right. Yep. So I think that's a really clever little Isn't thing, it? and it, yep. it gives you a lot more uh, independence, doesn't it, when you're Absolutely. somewhere. Yeah. You don't want somebody else reading the whole menu to you sometimes, but it allows you access yourself. So have a look at that one. And as I say, if you've got a family member who uses a smartphone, even if you don't, then that could be your solution. Um, the winter warmer we had, uh, 2022 winter warmer, uh, was on the 3rd of December, on the Saturday. Many of you came. And we had a wonderful range of volunteer help. So our, firstly, our thanks to all of you that helped prepare, make things, bring things, donate things, and come and help us on the day. Um, you all worked really hard, and we're really grateful for it. Um, we put in a lot of background work, as you probably know, but we wouldn't be able to do it without you. So it was a fantastic turnout. It was a bit cosy. We are aware it was a bit of a crush. But uh, we hope it was a happy crush, overwhelmingly. And um, we did very well, just to let you know. I think we made nearly £1,200. So that's that's a really good result, Mm. isn't it? So Mm. thank you to everybody for your input. Um, And, uh, yeah, I think think, uh, we are aware the venue is a bit of a challenge here because if you have the catering in the Mary Beale room, not everybody realises it's there mm. because yes. the, the site is so split yes. in the winter. Mm. In the summer, that doesn't matter, does it? Because you're right. in the mm. garden as well. Mm. So we thought we'd, we'd try the cosy approach this year. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, the last thing I'd like to talk about is um, I think many of you will remember that last January we did for the first time something called a hashtag take on 250 challenge. Uh, this is a now an annual campaign that was established, first of all, by the RNIB. They've done all the marketing for it, and they are happy for sight loss charities around the UK to use their marketing so we can adapt their 
brochures and pamphlets and posters to our own purposes, but using the logo that they produce and the theme of Take On 250, we are planning to do another event this January. Last year you rode the bike, didn't you? That's quite right. Last year the staff team all had we had a static bike That's set up right. in the kitchen yes. and we rode 250 <laughs> kilometers between us good for you yes all, all the time sitting in the kitchen in drinking cups of tea <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes. which was great fun and also last year carol bloxham did a uh, independently did a 250 challenge she went mm. round. she was doing long cane training again because she'd lost her doggy so she did 250 minutes of long cane training oh, and got mm-hmm. sponsored by lots of people Excellent. in her community yeah. and made several hundred pounds for us. Yeah. So it's a bit of fun. Uh, obviously, it's a fundraising opportunity, but it's also a way of raising awareness. So we would like to take the opportunity again in January. The staff group, I am conjuring up a cunning plan right now <laughs> to try and get the trustees involved with the staff team to do a 250 challenge I have an idea uh, I haven't shared it with most of them yet so I'd probably better not do that on the airwaves it's that bad is it (laughs) (laughs) no nothing scary Um, but it will involve us doing 250 laps of the garden and uh, something alongside that which I hope would be interesting and useful and maybe kind of get the public imagination going good so I'll tell you more about that when I've talked to the, the people involved does it last a month Yes, it's just the whole of Jan- January. Just January. Uh, the first to the thirty-first of January is the campaign. Right. Obviously, if if funds keep coming in after that, that's not a problem. You're not going to say no, uh, are you? No, we're not. <laughs> but you can stop walking around the garden. We can stop there. walking, <laughs> ra- walking <laughs> around the garden. Exactly. So all of our uh, own fundraising, although we use RNIB's materials, it's all locally sort of adapted, and it's all for the benefit of our own charity. So nothing goes to any other charities. Um, Chris and Claire Norman are very kindly going to um, do 250 kilometres of running around the park on our behalf for a challenge. So people might like to sponsor them. In January, that could be. In January, a bit chilly. chilly. They've been running anyway around the park, but they've also got a, a number of people from Coventry University medical students who are helping them as guides. So that Chris, Excellent. for instance, runs with a tethered guide, yep. yeah. so mm-hmm. he can feel his way around the park yes. yep. at speed. You know, Excellent. which is pretty impressive, isn't it? It is. And <laughs> the fitness impressive. is getting pretty impressive <laughs> along with it. <laughs> so they're going to do a 250 challenge for us. Um, we'll be setting up a just giving page for all of these events. So we'll tell you more about how it works uh, over the next couple of weeks. Well, um, only the next week. Next week's our last one. Next week, then. Yes, right. We'll have a bit more detail okay. for you next yep. week, and obviously we'll continue yep. to yep. fill in the gaps a bit more in the new year um the last thing about that challenge though is i thought well that's lovely because all of us are doing all this lovely work but i'd like to see whether we might do something that involves all of the people that come to us or use our services and maybe all our volunteers and i was thinking it's just an idea but i've been asking a lot of people and they seem to like it is whether we might get together a sort of mini exhibition of 250 pieces of work short work so somebody might like to draw a picture somebody else might like to identify an object or an item that they use somebody might like to write a one-off phrase which is meaningful to them or somebody might prefer to write a piece of writing maximum 250 words and if we could gather together maybe up to 250 pieces of work whatever Mm -hmm. they might be 
maybe with the theme that is about sight loss or living with sight loss or being inspired by people who live with sight loss, anything that you want to say, really. But the idea would be that perhaps we can find a way in the spring of putting that together as a little exhibition. And then we can charge people to come in and have a raffle and maybe a fun evening around it. And it might be a nice way of us putting something out on our uh, Facebook and web pages to say, look at all this work that people have contributed. Um, yeah, sounds, so, sounds, in, sounds intriguing. I yes. think that sounds yes. kind of interesting. Good. As I say, it's got some mileage in that, I think. Yes, <laughs> yes there's some scope in it. Yeah, mm. Well, it, I am asking people when I see them, so if anyone would like to give me their view and maybe think about something they would contribute, mm. as I say, it can be very short. One phrase, somebody this morning was remembering a phrase that they used to tell people when they first got diagnosed with sight loss, which was... Mm. Uh, something to do with going blind and not losing their mind or something you know it was mm-hmm. it was it was a meaningful phrase for yeah. them that was very motivational um so yeah we'd love to hear what you think about it so grab me when you get the moment or drop a line into the radio station or yep. tell heather in reception whatever yep. you like all ideas welcome all ideas very welcome good excellent so thank you. i think that's thank all for me nigel excellent thank you okay. thank you all very much i'll speak one of us will speak to you one next of you week. and hopefully it'll be well maybe both of you see it's our last one before christmas it might be yes. or if i don't then i wish you all a happy christmas now and uh see you mm. before if i do and if i don't otherwise i'll see you in the new year lovely yes. thank you joe yes, thank you thank you so, from the uh, fairly modest surroundings of the Resource Centre into the big wide world with Sarah and Sport. Outlook Sport. Well, hello and welcome to Sport. It's Sarah here. As you can tell, I'm sounding a little bit sort of subdued. Because at the time of recording, which is Monday afternoon, the news has just broken that my beloved Coventry City are to be evicted by Mike Ashley's House of Fraser Group, the new owners, from using a CBS arena. It's all a bit of a muddle and obviously I don't know any more than's in the club statement and has been reported widely on local radio and TV. But at present it seems that House of Fraser Group is saying the 10-year agreement we had with ACL, the previous owners under WASPs, no longer applies because they are the new owners. And so they've offered us a one-year deal, well, till May not even a year now, but it's not on such a good rate. And basically they've said, well, if you don't like it, you can get out. Anyway, I'm not going to say any more because hopefully by the time this actually goes out and gets to you through the post strikes, if you use the stick, it will all be resolved. But now I am going to talk a lot of balls. Well, local balls to be honest and I'll start with the ovoid shaped one for once because Coventry Rugby Club took on Doncaster Knights at the weekend. Now Coventry do not have a good record against Doncaster and at the beginning the commentator said 
this is going to be a very close match. Well, it was not. Coventry ran out winners 47 points to 7. Going in at half time 14 7. The second half was a thing of wonder to listen to as Coventry just couldn't stop scoring. I mean, we have a newish player, Sam Pellegrini, and he was just amazing. Throughout the coach at the end in his interview was basically saying, I do hope Premier Scouts aren't listening. Anyway, well done Coventry Rugby. You did us proud. And now a few local balls of the round shape. Leamington travelled to Boston United and I bet they wish they hadn't because they lost 3-0. Now I know Stratford and Nuneaton were playing but I'm so sorry guys, I just have not been able to find out the score uh, because I don't can't read the paper and the local radio didn't didn't comment on them this week. But going down to these smaller leagues, the Midland United Counties Premier League, Rothwell Corinthians won, the mighty Coventry United two, which was a much better result, I'm afraid, than Coventry United women, who lost 5-0 to Sunderland. I mean, I can't help thinking that Coventry United women are kind of in the wrong league and would do much better down a league. But the thing is, the league they're in is the professional league and they are professionals or part-time professionals. So obviously that's where they want to stay. And again, I know that Rugby Town took on Milton Keynes Irish FC but sadly they haven't updated their Facebook site either. Anyway, now I'm going to talk about the big balls. By that of course I do mean the World Cup. So I'm going to continue reading from my diary. Well not my diary of course but the diary I found you know, the secret diary of an England football fan, aged 58 and three quarters. My gosh, they'll be getting grey hairs after some of this lot. Anyway, entry for Tuesday the 29th of November. Unfortunately, we bid a fond farewell today to my second team, Wales. Well, it had to be done. I'm sorry, but England were better. Wales, you do have the best national anthem, and I will miss hearing Glad. Hey-ho, can't have everything. I've still got my first team, England, and my third team, Croatia. That's a long story. So, England through to the last 16. Entry for Friday the 2nd of December. Hmm, the last 16. Interesting mix. It includes South Korea and Morocco. 
both hardly sort of big wigs in the football scene, but not the old guys of Belgium or Germany. Oh dear. Sorry, any German listeners. But I have no sympathy whether that ball had crossed the line or not. I remember similar happening when we played you in 2010. I was washing it in a bar with a lot of Germans. I remember it well. Right. And now I will fast forward to their entry for Sunday the 4th of December. I went to church in the morning, but we didn't pray for England. Hmm. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Would it be the prayers of intercession or the prayers of thanksgiving? Hmm. Did a bit of housework just to keep busy before the match. You know, England against Senegal. Now, before you scoff, Senegal are not some just little team. Senegal are the current African Cup holders. That means they have beaten the mites of teams like Nigeria, South Africa, you know, some pretty big little teams. Anyway, I'll continue with the diary. If that commentator reminds me once more that if we lose, we go home tomorrow, I shall scream. But based on this afternoon's match, if we win, we'll be playing France. Oh, football's coming home. Well, it may be, but it may have to stop at Calais, I'm afraid. Right. The first half is just about to start. But it's a bit like watching paint dry. Oh, oh gosh, that was close for Senegal. Watching that proverbial... Oh, gosh, they've done it again. Oh, my heart, my heart, my heart. England did have several chances in the early days, but Senegal are just getting so close. Oh, I think I'm going to go in the front room and do a little bit of keep fit. No, I know. I'll put my keep fit iPad on over there and the television over there. So I've got the iPad to the left and the telly to the right. So I can do my keep fit and multitask. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh, England has scored! Wowie! Jordan Henderson, the current Liverpool captain. Now we at Coventry City can claim a little bit of fame here. He did spend a few weeks on trial with us. Well, not on trial, sort of on loan. But we sent him back because he got injured. Whew, that's good. Right, now to get on with the keep fishing. Oh, gosh, we've scored again. Wow. And right on the stroke of, of half-time. Oh, 2-0 England. My heart can relax a little bit. I'll save the coffee break till the second half. 
Remember what happened the last time? We scored two goals. Football's coming home. Right. So, let's see what happens now. Cup of coffee made. Sat down. Wow, another goal. Saka's scored. Michele Saka. Good lad. Well done. Final score. England 3. Senegal 0. France. Bring them on. Football's coming home, you know. And just as a footnote, I did hear on the news that the 2026 World Cup will not only be staged across three countries, Mexico, the United States and Canada, but will be made up of 48 teams in the first round. That is a total of 1,200 players. The current World Cup is 32 teams and that seems quite big. Hey-ho, and that was your sport for this week. Next week, there won't be a lot of balls. I'll be talking about Spotty. You know, that sports personality of the year. Bye. Thank you, Sarah. Now, uh, with a week to go to Christmas, I guess there's some messages coming in. Here's Dave with Postbag. Uh, hopefully next week there'll be even more messages. This is Postbag. Join in the discussion. Hello there, and welcome to your Postbag. It's that time of year again. So now is the time to send in your Christmas greetings and anything to do with Christmas. We need them in now, by the way, so I can compile them for our Christmas special tape. Now, one Monday morning recently, at the Monday Club, it had a 40s theme with entertainer Nick Golden. Julia has this report on a great morning with everyone joining in with the singing. Her report is entitled Golden Oldies. On Monday I went to the Monday Club. Monday is the best day to go to the Monday Club where Nick Golden sang his Golden Oldies. He brought his organ with him and a hat and he passed them both around so he could see and feel them. He sang Grandad in 1977. Well, Nick Golden sang it in 2022. Clive Dunn recorded it in 1977. Then he sang Show Me The Way To Go Home. Nick Golden sang it, not Clive Dunn. He wasn't there. If he was, I didn't see him. He used to play Corporal Jones in Dad's Army. Clive Dunn, that is, not Nick Golden. This is all very confusing. So who was it who sang Show Me The Way To Go Home? I'll tell you. It was my friend John when he was on his way home from the pub. Then he would fall on his knees and go to sleep in an alleyway until early in the morning. He made me promise not to tell anyone, but he didn't pay me enough to keep quiet. So now you all know. I'd like to say hello to my friends Dorian and Eva, who enjoyed the club with me, Julia. 
Thank you, Julia, and I'm so glad you are enjoying the Monday Club along with Doreen and Eva. Now, if you listen to Outlook on a smartphone, Graham Whale talks about pieces of street furniture that comes with it, whether you like it or not. Something else that's been sprouting up all over the place, and that's phone masks. But Graham questions people complaining about them when they are on the internet. I wonder how many of these not-in-my-backyard people who are protesting about the new 5G telephone mast along the Hollyhead Road complain if they can't get a decent mobile signal. You know, there's an app you can download onto your mobile phone. I can't remember what it's called, and I've no idea how accessible it is for visually impaired person to use it. But it will tell you of the extension or the rate of radiation within the facility of you and your mobile phone. I think you'll find you get a higher percentage of radiation from the appliances in your own home than you would from a mobile phone mast, particularly if you've got Wi-Fi in the house. I think most people, including those who are protesting about this telephone mast, have probably got Wi-Fi in their homes. Thank you, Graham. I don't have Wi-Fi, but I have a smartphone which enables me to join VIP World Community in a weekly Zoom session. Ishan Jha, this last week, was hosting the meeting from his hometown of Kathmandu, where he is getting married on the day this week's Outlook is being broadcast. Ishan was asking us what we'd been up to lately, and Alinda talked about a submarine trip for blind people that she went on in Barbados. Well, you went on a submarine dive, Alinda. Oh, yeah, so that sounds great. Yeah, I, it was wonderful. I mean, for a blind person, you know, not being able to see on those days, you know, it was telling you when you were, they were telling you how many feet you were down under the sea. So we got to like 130 feet under, and then we came back up, you know, gradually. But it was fun, and the guys were very descriptive, you know, they were able to describe the the types of what was was under there, the the reefs and so on, and the different fish and the names of the fish, and some fish that turns, that uh, that, um can switch from being a female to a male and all kinds of <laughs> that was wonderful. <laughs> we, said, we said we never knew they had transgender fish. <laughs> I've heard of them, yeah. Yes, I have heard of it. Uh, Sheila and I like to watch David Attenborough DVDs and I learnt from Blue Planet 2 about a fish with a big bulbous head that changes sex. Linda went firstly to a school for the blind, and so did Tina of the Monday Club, but not all school memories are full of rose-tinted nostalgia. There was a girl in school, uh, the teacher, this same teacher was in Barton, her name was Mrs. Clump. She had to control her. She was very bad-tempered. Uh, she hit one of the staff. 
she hit the the uh, cooking teacher. We were doing some washing and she hit me as well. And I had to go and get Mrs. Clump. She had to control her. She was violent. She was vile. Well, Tina, she probably had emotional problems. Our youngest son, Graham, who likes writing songs, met a former school pupil recently who apologised for giving him a hard time at school. Graham, being a forgiving person, then wrote a song called People Can Change. A special school can make all the difference in turning a child's life around who was regarded as uh, problematic, as demonstrated in this excerpt from an interview I did after a school show with former inspiring head of Exol Grange School, listener Richard Bignall. The show is the was James and the Giant Peach, and it was our primary department. Everybody, every child in the primary department involved on the main stage in our assembly hall. And I just have to say, if, if people realised the actual complex special needs of these children, uh, they would know that it's all about what children with... Um, severe problems, what if they're given the opportunity they can do as opposed to what often people think they can't do. We had a child narrating who actually has been excluded from mainstream school for over a year. Really? Uh, and that is staggering to actually realise the job he did and the way in coming to us and how he settled in the school that he can be up on the stage narrating the performance doing a brilliant job. Amy Klengel, who is mad keen on Cinderella, went to a musical version of uh, it in Manchester recently. It was a musical and not a pantomime, and written by the famous Rodgers and Hammerstein. The first time Cinderella has been performed outside Broadway. So here's Amy to tell you all about it. I went to see Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella, which has always been one of my favourite versions and this actually was the European premiere and I met the cast afterwards and they were all really nice and they actually gave me a special signed poster. Everyone in the cast has signed it and this poster wasn't available there. This was a special poster that they they done especially for me. And uh, I should talk about the stage, shouldn't I? Um, uh, before the show show started, there was lace on the stage, a lace curtain. It was really pretty and really unusual. And likewise, when it finished at the end, uh, 
And, yeah, it, it was a lovely show. They had lovely costumes. It's got some lovely songs in it. Um, I don't know whether you, you know any of the songs. In my own little corner, um, in, it, impossible. Um, I can't think what it's called, but the, uh, the sudden that I, I've heard Nat King Cole sing a version of. I can't think what I can't think what it's called now. Um, falling in love with love is falling for make believe. You sang that very well, thank you, Amy. Now. I have some sad news for you that a much-loved user of the Resource Centre, Peggy McKinney, has passed away following a stroke about a week earlier, a short time after moving into a home in Erdington, Birmingham, where they did deaf-blind signing. Peggy was deaf-blind and unable to speak, so unable to hear her own voice. She was a lovely, friendly and caring lady. She would greet people with a hug and often feel their heads to get an idea of what they looked like. She would touch my wedding ring to ask about my wife Sheila. She had several carers. One was the lovely late Diane from Sense who asked her about the Monday Club on my behalf. Yeah. Yeah. What, yeah, I love the Monday Club here. What do you like about it? Got lots of friends here that can sign. Yeah, lots of friends, lots of friends that are lovely, lovely friends, yeah. yeah they're all very friendly to her. All very friendly to her. And also, she does a Thursday club. Do you like it there? Yeah, there's lots of uh, different people at the Thursday one. I've been with her, and it's quite nice. And here, there's different people. And so some of the time, and some are different, she said, yeah. Now, Diane took Peggy to our youngest son, Graham and Friends concert in aid of the Resource Centre, where I had the pleasure of dancing with her. Now, she had a friend called Arthur at the Monday Club, who invited the members, including Peggy, to his 90th birthday party. Now, Peggy also went to the craft class on a Wednesday and the computer class, where she drank lots of tea. When entertainers came to the Monday Club, I invited them to place their musical instruments in her hands. Listen to the skillful way she plays Chris Norman's guitar. <laughs> And with Peggy in mind, I invited wildlife rescue organisations to come to the Monday Club. She happily stroked a six-foot boa constrictor, an eagle owl and a ferret with dementia, which had been thrown from a car window. Later at the Monday Club, Jane, the friend of late listener Annie Yates, brought a white rat along which was blind, which Peggy held in her arms for a long time. 
as I said in my report, if a rat can give comfort and companionship to a deafblind lady, then what can we do? Now, one of Peggy's carers, called Belle, asked her about a Christmas day on the farm. Peggy went to the farm to the animals. She loved it. It's a cow and a horse and struggle with a dog. And she loved it. She's so happy. And Peggy tried very hard to speak and gave this Christmas greeting to the listeners in Postbag. I hope you'll follow her example this Christmas. Peggy wishing everybody a happy Christmas. And a very happy new year. Thank you. Peggy was a lovely caring lady. She will be much missed. Thank you for your messages this week. Please let's hear from you next time, including your Christmas greetings. Thank you. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Thanks, Dave. And, of course, just one more postbag up for Christmas. Margaret is uh, still visiting the architectural treasures of Coventry, and this week she's at the Belgrade Theatre in Corporation Street. The Belgrade was the first post-war professional theatre built in Britain. Opened in March 1958, it takes its name from Coventry's twin city, Belgrade, then in Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia presented £6,000 worth of beechwood to Coventry for rebuilding. Much was used for the new roof in the Guildhall and the rest in the Belgrade. The theatre was designed by Arthur Ling, the city architect, and cost £203,000. It originally had its own company of actors and became renowned under its first director, Brian Bailey. Early company members included Sir Trevor Nunn, Sir Ian McClellan, Dame Joan Plowright, Michael Crawford, Frank Finlay and Leonard Rossiter. The theatre reopened in September 2007 after undergoing a £12 million refurb with a seven-storey extension providing a second auditorium. Importantly, although not taking place here, the Belgrade has in the past kept Coventry's mystery play tradition alive and it was also a pioneer of youth theatre. I'm sure most of us have been to performances at the Belgrade over the years. It's one of the landmark buildings of, of the city, of course. Now, last week, Bill started the story of the evolution of telegrams to today's WhatsApp and Twitter, and this week completes the history, as written by Neil Clark, starting at the beginning of the First World War. During the First World War, Zimmermann telegram was a secret coded communication from the German Foreign Office proposing a military alliance between Germany and Mexico. Intercepted and decoded by British intelligence, 
communication, when revealed, caused outrage in the US, generating public support for America declaring war on Germany. Telegrams were also the means by which many Britons learned of the death of their loved ones in combat, and consequently, the sight of a telegram delivery boy approaching the front door was something people came to dread. Domestic rapes at the outbreak of the First World War were nine words or less for six old pennies, with one penny for each further word. The gradual extension of telephone ownership in the 1920s had impact on usage. But in 1935, the introduction of a greetings telegrams gave the service a major boost. These communications, subject to a 3D surcharge, were delivered in a special festive form enclosed in a golden envelope. In his New Shell Book of Firsts, Patrick Robertson records how, in February 1936 alone, 50,000 people sent Valentine's Day telegrams. One young Romeo concluded his message, And now I've asked you to be mine. Gosh, it's cost me eight and nine. Beautifully designed greetings telegrams were produced for special occasions, such as Christmas and the 1937 coronation of George VI. The most coveted telegrams of all were those sent by the ruling monarch, subjects celebrating their 100th birthday or 60th wedding anniversary. Tradition began in 1917 King George V. His message reads, Majesty's hope, the blessings of good health and prosperity may attend you during the remainder of your days. Back then, there were only 24 recipients of the Royal 100th Birthday Telegram. As life expectancy increased, Buckingham Palace's telegram budget grew bigger. Subjects of the Crown in other countries received them too. In August 1939, there were pictures in the newspapers of 100-year-old William Pritchard of Adelaide, South Australia, reading a cable from the King and Queen with a cigar in his mouth. The Whitaker's Almanac of 1940 informed readers, telegrams may be handed into a post office, or, if prepaid and enclosed in an envelope marked telegram, posted without a stamp or handed to a rural postman. During the bombing of the Central Telegraph Office in London during the Blitz, Second World War, like the first, gave the service another shot in the arm. Evacuated children were given one free telegram a month to keep in touch with their parents. The number of telegrams sent rose from 50 million in 1939 to 63 million in 1945. In the post-war years, use of the service dramatically declined. While 42 million telegrams were still being sent in 1950, as domestic telephone ownership increased, the number has fallen to 7.7 million by 1970. Writing in 1973, J.L. Keeve, author of Electric Telegraph, a social and economic history, observed, The situation has been reached, most people probably have never got a telegram brought by a messenger 
from one year's end to another. If they do, it is assumed that their relatives have been struck by lightning or they have won the pools. In the early 1980s, the privatisation of British Telecom, which had taken over the running of the service from the post office, marked the telegram's death knell. BT introduced a new telemessage service in 1981 using the Telex service, and on September 30th, 1982, closed down the domestic telegram service altogether. It was the end of almost 150 years of history. Royal telegrams are no longer sent to centenarians, and those celebrating significant wedding anniversaries are cards instead. However, telegrams have survived in Germany, Italy, Spain, Argentina, China, Japan, Russia and Turkey. Telegrams may have to be paid for at the point of sending, Let's face it, who hasn't sent a text or email and later regretted in haste? And could it be, in this post-telegram era, we are simply communicating too much? The sheer volume of communications in the smartphone age, it was calculated that more than 40 billion text messages were sent in Britain alone in 2021, can be overwhelming in a way that telegrams never were. But perhaps 40 years after the last domestic telegrams were sent, it's time to consider receiving them. Or, as Victor Hugo might have put it, telegrams? Question mark. History and technology certainly have consigned to the bin those little buff communiques with brief messages spelt out on white paper tape. Those of you who go to the Monday Club will have heard Mark Woods, the polar explorer and Everest mountaineer, recently relating his latest adventures. But everyone will be familiar with him from his previous visits and the messages he sent to us uh, during those many exploits. Uh, On his most recent visit to the Monday Club, Dave took the opportunity to have a chat with him. Right, welcome Mark Wood, Polo Explorer and Everest Mountaineer to the Monday Club. So, where have you been lately? You've been somewhere, somewhere cold, presumably. You like it cold, don't you? I do. <laughs> I do. It's lovely to be here. I think this is one of the, the happiest places that I come to, even though yeah. people have mixed sort of abilities with the site. It, I always get a warm welcome, a, a biscuit and a cup of tea and that, so it's always a pleasure. But I've just got back from the Himalayas, yeah. so um, not as cold as I, I normally have in, on polar expeditions, but I've been guiding for a month, uh, two teams yeah. around uh, to Ever- Mount Everest Base Camp and also a place called Annapurna. So yeah. I, I did two treks around there. Um, and after living through COVID as we've all done over the last yes. few years it was just nice to get back in the mountains again really yeah so great. yeah okay, yeah great you, you went to Kathmandu with your team first to kind of settle in and tell them all about it I suppose yeah yeah so Kathmandu is is when I was yeah. when I before I went there like 20 years ago it, I had it in my head as like this Indiana Jones sort of sort of like city you know of uh, yeah. wow what's this going to be like and it didn't disappoint yeah. and for 20 years I've been guiding teams in in the Himalayas yeah. Yeah. Uh, over 700 people have been guided um, and Kathmandu 
is a real mixture of well first of all it's like there's a lot of like it's like most cities a lot of uh, poverty um, and work needs to be done for the people out there uh, on many many different yeah. levels but then you have this tourist area where um, you can prepare properly for your treks or expeditions yeah. Yeah. Um, so it is a welcome place it's quite warm it's in a in a valley it is, yeah. so it's quite warm and even though you're in a city you're actually at the height of Ben Nevis yeah. So it's it's a very high area to begin yes. with, um, but it's lovely then to go from there. Cause it's quite there's a lot of vehicles around, so there's there's a lot of smog. So to fly then into the freshness of the mountains is something that we look forward to. But, but once the expeditions are finished, you then look forward to going back to Kathmandu to get a pizza yeah. and a beer. <laughs> <laughs> so people go on these kind of adventure holidays, do they? And you go yeah. to base camp. Is yeah, so yeah, you're right, you're right there. So um, I take everyday people from their own working environment and they've got the time to go out. We then train them uh, we then yeah. guide them through um, beautiful areas of the Himalayas and usually uh, it's the first impression I had when I went there as I say 20 years ago yeah. so I see it in people I guide out there they look at the mountains and it's, they're taking 100 photographs before they've gone 100 yeah. yards you know it's, it's that kind of experience it's, it is they say it's one of I say it's the best trail on the planet uh, to yeah. see mountains. There's no roads along the trail in the Kumbu region to Everest Base Camp, so it's unspoilt to a degree. Um, so, yeah, a real experience. A, a few people from Coventry have gone this time okay. around. Yeah. I've taken teachers from Coventry, and there's a. So, it's nice to get everybody who I've met to experience what I've experienced, to inspire them, really. But what are the age groups? Are there people that go on these things? Well, if they're going individually, it's above 18 years old. Yeah. Um, but it, sometimes we've had uh, children, say children, teenagers, yeah. 14, and 12 was one. But um, they come with their parents, so the responsibility is with their parents. Yeah. Um, and then I speak to them beforehand to make sure that they understand yeah. what they're getting into. Um, it's not hardcore expeditioning but if the weather changes it can potentially be hardcore expeditioning yes. so we need to prepare for that so yeah. I, I am reluctant to take children as such but it's an understanding between, between the parents and myself yeah. as a guide okay so what's the, the oldest people you've actually taken um probably me being 55 <laughs> now so actually there's a guy on this last track who was 67 um and he performed really, really well. I, I think what it is, is as you get older, you understand yourself a little bit better. So yes. the ego is very, very deflated. Yes. And that allows you to just enjoy the moment without yes. the pressure of being that superhero on the mountain. Yeah. I kind of like that about people. I like the vulnerability yeah. of people, um, the, the way that they experience things yeah. in the moment. They see things that I don't see. Yeah. Um, so he was like that he was really he was really observant really listening to me as well and, yeah. and he got so much out of the track 
Um, and of course, you came back fitter as well because you you operate at altitude for two weeks. Right, it, right. it makes you fitter. Now so. I'm looking at your two dogs, Pip yeah. and Kieran. I understand you've had a dog, a sled dog, named after you. Yes, you've done your research, you're right. I've done my homework. You have, oh bless you. Yeah, well I worked in the Arctic this year, I I was part of an expedition that went to see Sir John Franklin's graves on um, Beachy Head on on Devon Island, high Arctic Canada, and we took dogs out with us, and um, uh, when I got back, the Inuit guy Devon who's an incredible chap um, he said look come and take a look at my the new puppies and um, and one of them come bounding out with blood all over his face because he'd been eating you know the meat that they're giving him and he's there in the Arctic with blood on his face I thought okay he looks cool and he says well he hasn't got a name so I'll call him Woody Yes. Now, Woody's my old nickname, you know. Yeah, um, when I was in the military, they called me Woody in fire and rescue and that. But um, when any, anybody calls me Woody, I know that it, they know me from the past. That's so, um, yeah, they call me all sorts of different names nowadays. So, I'm joking. Okay, <laughs> so you've been on the sled be, behind the sled dogs, though. Yeah, well, his, his dogs were actually pulling this, yeah. this, the big, massive sledge. is called a Comatux. Yeah. Um, and we took snowmobiles and yes. we did this team effort. My dogs here are from the Dogs Trust. They're short haired collies. Yeah, and they, nice. they like the warm. They, yeah. they don't really. Do you, do you like the warm puppy? You going to say something? Puppy. Hello? And Kira. <laughs> and Kira, yeah, both beautiful dogs. So. Excellent. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You've also received a gold, a Queen's Golden Jubilee for a service or something like this. Oh, that was a so few. That was actually a few years ago. Yeah. To tell you the truth, it yeah. was for the Jubilee. Um, I think in the. Can't remember. But that was a few years ago. There's some. There's a bit of news I've got for you good, that you good. don't know about. Good. All right. Because <laughs> well, it's, well, it's not. It's not. It's not out at the moment because I'm getting this at the end of the yeah. month. But a university has recognised my work with exploration yeah. and education. Yes. That's what I do over the last 20 years. Yeah. So they're they're honouring me with a doctorate. Yeah. Um, at the end of the month, so I've got to go to London and put a gown on and a cap and it's and I'm really sort of um, you know super happy about that so Arden Arden University Arden Arden University University. yeah so I'm really yeah I'm really made up with that so you're going to have to call me Dr Wood from now on (laughs) 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 so we're going to go and chat to the guys in there thank you very much a big welcome Mark to the Monday Club thank Thank you you very very much. much great Mark Woods, an an intrepid adventurer. Christmas decorations, of course, are starting to put up and lit up everywhere, heralding Christmas in a couple of weeks' time. But what are the origins of the Christmas tradition of exchanging gifts? She has been investigating in this article from English Heritage website. Giving is an ancient tradition, likely to be as old as humanity itself. It was probably a common practice in prehistory, helping to maintain friendly relations between different groups of people by building bonds of trust between them. We know that the winter solstice, usually the 21st or 22nd of December, was an important time during the Neolithic period. At this time, people gathered together at sites like Stonehenge for feasting and gift exchanging to commemorate the end of one year and the beginning of the next. 
Excavations near Stonehenge have uncovered more than 38,000 animal bones, mostly from pigs and cattle, which have been slaughtered around midwinter time. Many of the bones had meat still attached when they were discarded, suggesting there was plenty of food to go around. In pre-Roman times, there was a tradition of giving gifts in the new year. At the beginning of each year, the Druids gave out sprigs of their sacred plant, mistletoe, to wish their people good fortune for the year ahead. Romans gave gifts known as strenae, named in honour of the strenae, a goddess of health and physical well-being, from whose sacred grove the original luck-bringing laurel trigs were sourced. During this time of revelry, gambling was allowed, work was put aside and masters waited on their servants. People exchanged joke gifts or small figurines made of wax or pottery. Choosing the right gift was important and depended on your social status and position. Token gifts of low value were a measure of high esteem you had for a friend, whereas expensive gifts were a sign you were trying too hard. Gifting was mostly between men, though women and children also took part. As Christianity spread into the Roman world, the custom of gift-giving on New Year's Day was continued as a counterpoint to the excess of the Roman Saturnalia. It also tied in better with the biblical story of the Magi giving gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh to the infant Jesus at the Epiphany on January the 6th. Medieval English monarchs from the reign of Henry III in the 13th century right up until the time of the Commonwealth in the mid-17th century used the tradition of giving gifts at New Year to force their subjects into making them gifts as a form of taxation. During the Tudor period, competitive gift-giving was much in evidence. In 1534, Henry VIII is recorded to have received presents including a silver gilt compass, a goodly table of Hercules, a tablet of gold, a goodly clock, a primer of written hand in vellum, and a marmoset from a gentleman of the court. Ordinary people exchanged gifts in the new year too, with gloves, oranges and cloves being some of the most common presents. In parts of northern and eastern Europe, gifts were usually given towards the beginning of Advent on the Feast of St Nicholas, the 6th of December. Whereas New Year gift-giving was primarily an adult activity, St Nicholas Day was a time for giving presents to children, as Nicholas was the patron saint of children. Born in Myra in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, he was a wealthy bishop who used his money to help the poor, often giving secret gifts to people who needed them. One modern Christmas tradition that can be associated with him is the Christmas stocking. Legend has it that he secretly helped a poor man who didn't have enough money to provide diaries for his three daughters by dropping bags of gold down the chimney into their stockings that were hanging by the fire to dry. This explains why people traditionally hang their stockings on the fireplace today. The shift of gift-giving to Christmas time can be linked in part to the Protestant Reformation in Northern Europe and the move away from having so many feast days. It also has its roots in North America and the popularity of Santa Claus. Dutch settlers to America had taken with them stories of St Nicholas known to them as Sinterklaas. Over time he became Santa Claus and his present deliveries moved from St Nicholas Day to Christmas Eve. And Sheila will recount the rest of the giving of the presents tradition next week.
Presents are, of course, one of the features of Christmas, but leading up to the 25th of December, many people will, each day, open up a little window on an advent calendar. But the, the, what's behind those 24 little doors? Advent calendars have become weirder and sometimes more expensive, uh, as the windows may reveal coffee, cat food, or even diamonds, which seemingly, with, with, with seemingly uh, no end of choices. This article was written by Chris Mangan and read by Sue. There is a memory that comes into sharp focus at the start of December. I am seven years old and poorly, and I have to take some medicine, something bitter and syrupy that coated my throat and immediately made me shudder. Just the unscrewing of the bottle crusted with sugar crystals caused a Pavlovian response and my face would contort dramatically in anticipation. I hated taking it, so one day my parents cut me a deal. If I took a teaspoon in the afternoon, I could open tomorrow's door on the advent calendar. That meant I'd open two doors in one day. It seemed too good to be true. It didn't matter that our calendar was Cadbury's dairy milk, delicious, dependable, unremarkable, or that from a logistical standpoint, the two-door-a-day system would run out of steam the closer we got to Christmas. The promise of prying the door open 24 hours early, even though I knew exactly what was waiting inside, was enticing. The ritual and reward of the Advent calendar has always held a particular sway. It doesn't matter that the festive avatar, crudely stamped into your chocolate bite, looks nothing like a snowman or a robin. Nor does it matter that for the same cost of a Cadbury's Advent calendar, you could simply buy a block of chocolate and wolf it down in a single afternoon. The point is that the daily routine and reward brings a heightened satisfaction. Despite my nostalgia for childhood advent calendars, I have since stopped buying them. As an adult, who will see off a family-sized bag of Haribo during one episode of The White Lotus, I fear the simplicity of the advent calendar, which relies on an honour-based system that has long atrophied the further I've wandered into adulthood. Maybe the solution then is to think bigger, to go bigger. Because while I have moved away from my dairy milk origins, the Advent calendar has also seen a radical overhaul in recent years. There was a time when the chocolate nibbles were a luxury upgrade compared to a religious picture, no other gift included. But the Advent calendars of 2022 are an entire pre-Christmas market, catering to everyone's tastes. The beauty industry was one of the early adopters of what we might call the calendarification of products, seeing the 24 Advent windows as a portal into a world of endless marketing opportunities, with London department store Liberties being one of the most famous. This year it costs £245, 
but contains 1,065 pounds worth of products from cult brands that include Dr. Barbara Sturm, Lalabo and NARS. People who know their AHAs from their BHAs call this the best beauty advent calendar for a reason and it routinely sells out. It was in the beauty market that the statusy calendar was conceived. Yes, it's a lot of money, but if you're going to buy most of these products anyway, this is arguably the best way to do it. Plus, if you have no need for an eye contour cream, you could always re-gift on Christmas Day. Beauty calendars from Penhaligons, Netta Porte and Charlotte Tilbury soon followed Liberty. These beauty calendars opened the floodgates on the calendar gold rush. Now, Tony's Chocolonely, the ethically sourced and whimsy-adjacent chocolatier, has a £13 calendar, and Le Dure, the French patisserie known for its jewel-coloured macarons, has a £70 calendar featuring filled chocolates, caramel candies and rose-flavoured calissons, a French sweet made from candied fruit, ground almonds and royal icing. The ideal choice for the person who has been to Paris exactly three times and considers it part of their personality. On the more ridiculous end of the spectrum is Prunier, which does a caviar advent calendar. While London jeweller Lark and Berry sells a 12 days of Christmas option with a mixture of mined and cultured diamonds in white or yellow gold that will set you back just under £5,000. Elsewhere, Danish confectioner Lakrids by Bulof produces a licorice advent calendar while Artisan Coffee Company does a range of calendars for people who are absurdly specific about how they brew their coffee. I know parents who rave about Brio and Lego calendars for their kids which neatly complement their existing toys. Think of them as a gift they can essentially microdose throughout December. But don't break the bank. You can get succulents tinned fish or even cans of wine via the medium of opening a tiny cardboard door each day. Of course the whole cottage industry is absurd. While I love mackerel, I'm not sure how I'd consume the entire contents of a tinned fish calendar without succumbing to mercury poisoning by the 14th of December. But having made my way through most of their seasonal offerings before, I would recommend Brew York's £48 advent calendar, not least because they're a small indie brewery. Whether you choose to neck a gingerbread milk stout or a tiny bottle of Sipsmith gin before heading to the office on a December morning is entirely up to you. Maybe it's something you open at the end of the day, not the start, when you've put your loungewear on and lit a nice candle. The rise of status advent calendars invites us to invent our own rituals, after all. 
in a way, the opening of the doors in any kind of order is beside the point, as is the cost. It's an understatement to say that money is a concern for most families this Christmas. But here we have a way to treat ourselves gently over the course of a whole month. If the point is to self-prescribe a small tchotchke each day to make you feel better, then the possibilities are almost endless. So, have you got another calendar? What little surprises have you had, had hidden behind your little doors? Let us know in postback. And to end this week's programme, and keeping in the Christmas spirit, here's a short poem by William Wordsworth called Make It Snow, read by Margaret. The minstrels played their Christmas tune tonight beneath my cottage eaves, while smitten by a lofty moon. The encircling laurels, thick with leaves, gave back a rich and dazzling sheen that overpowered their natural green. Through hill and valley, every breeze had sunk to rest with folded wings. Keen was the air, but could not freeze, nor check the music of the strings. So stout and hardy were the band that scraped the chords with strenuous hand. And who but listened, till was paid respect to every inmate's claim, the greeting given, the music played, in honour of each household name, duly pronounced with lusty call, and Merry Christmas wished to all. Next week's outlook will be the last for this year, as we'll be taking a two-week break for Christmas. With the current irregular postal strikes, we are sometimes not getting the wallets back in time for reuse, so some of you may have, or possibly will, unfortunately have problems receiving the memory sticks regularly. So I'm going to take this opportunity, both this week and next, of course, of wishing you a very happy Christmas and a peaceful New Year. And with that, it's goodbye from Nigel Hewin. <laughs>